We're going to look at Psalm 32 this morning. So if you have a Bible with you, you can open to Psalm 32, or there's the text printed in the bulletin. It's um, been one of my favorite psalms for a long time. Probably there's something wrong with me, but it's one of my favorite psalms. Uh, It basically says, I I think it's good ultimately, Uh, it basically says that God wants you to know his forgiveness personally, uh, as opposed to abstractly, personally, relationally, for yourself. He wants you to know his forgiveness, that he's a forgiving God, which means, according to the psalm and really according to all the scriptures everywhere, um, he's going to help you personally to know your need for his forgiveness. God will do what it takes to bring us to a place where we will confess our sin so that that we can receive the life-changing assurance that he forgives us. He wants us to know that he forgives us. He's going to bring us to a place where we confess our sins so that we can really understand his forgiveness and understand him as the forgiving God. That isn't just something that happens... Once in a Christian's life, sort of at the beginning of the Christian life, everybody knows you're supposed to confess your sins, put your faith in Christ, and receive forgiveness. Well, it's not just something that happens once. It's something that God will bless you with throughout your life with him. Him bringing you to a place where you'll confess your sin so that you can receive his forgiveness and and understand him as the forgiving God and know his forgiveness. It's a blessing we enjoy together on at least a weekly basis. During our worship, as a formal place, he calls us to confess our sins, and we do it, and he assures us of the forgiveness of our sins. And so, I think that's great. It really is great, unless you cannot stand being brought to a place where you have to confess your sins. If you can't stand it, then this is not a pleasant process for you. Uh, which pretty much describes everybody by nature. Nobody can stand being brought to a place where you confess your sins. Nobody likes being told that they have to confess their sins to God. Nobody likes having to remember that he or she is a sinner. You're definitely not alone in that resistance to God's call. He's calling you to confess for your good. You don't want to. Now raise your hand if if that describes you. That's me and everybody. So that's actually part of the very definition of being a sinner. I don't like what God has to say to me, especially when he isn't telling me just how wonderful I am and reinforcing my self-esteem. So it's actually an understandable thing for people to dislike about church. This is the place where we go through that process together and keep each other in that process. Uh, It's the place where we're always telling people that they're sinners and nobody wants to listen to that. It makes total sense that people would dislike the church for doing that, for being that place. But it's so good for us to be brought to that, that place, that impossible place of confession of our sins, because then we can delight in the assurance of, forgot, of God's forgiveness. We delight in him. Maybe you don't want to talk about that. Um, a lot of times I don't either, but we should. It'll be good. So that's what we'll talk about this morning. Let's pray. Then we'll read the scripture. <clears throat> Father, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would make us attentive to your word. That what it says uh, would not just make sense abstractly, but it would make sense to us. That personally, we would understand ourselves in light of this psalm, but um, even more, that we would understand you in light of this psalm. 
We pray that you would reveal yourself to us as we consider your word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Maskil of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time where you may be found. Surely, in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So you know what I love about this psalm? King David doesn't say, Blessed are the awesome people. Blessed are the respectable religious people. Blessed are the people who are doing it right. Blessed are the people who have got it all together. You're not going to find that idea anywhere in the Bible. Put those pictures of blessedness out of your mind. That place where you can say, blessed are the awesome people. uh, That's not the place God is bringing you. Sorry if that's a disappointment to you. It shouldn't be. Because you know who's blessed? And that um, that word really does have something. I think commentators point out that it has something more exuberant in it than um, we usually think of the word blessed. It really does mean like merry. It means spiritually happy, spiritually, deeply, profoundly joyful. Um, you know who's blessed? You know who's spiritually happy? <clears throat> People who know they're sinners but know also, and even more so, that God forgives them. That's the people. They are the spiritually happy people according to God. We're not just making this up. This is what God says. So God does what it takes to bring you to that place, to bring you to that impossible place where you confess your sin and you receive the assurance of his forgiveness, and he does it precisely because he wants you to be blessed, because he wants you to be happy, spiritually happy, deeply, profoundly, spiritually joyful. The problem is we, um, we resist that. We don't believe that that could possibly be why he's doing it, that he wants us to be blessed. He wants us to be happy in this way. We don't believe that. We think we will be happier if we can actually just ignore the whole idea of our sin. We've been in rebellion against God. Let's just pretend we haven't. Let's ignore that. Right? We think we'll be happier if we could just sin, because we want to do that. We think we'd be happier if we could just sin but not really know that we're sinning and not be confronted with that reality, not, not be confronted with the problem of our sin and our relationship with God, not have to acknowledge 
that what we've done actually is commit cosmic treason. All the different ways the Bible has us think about sin, we just don't want to think about it. We want to do it without having to think about it, be confronted with it, without the consequences of it. Anything but sit with the hard reality of it. So we sin, but we're afraid to know ourselves as sinners. We're afraid to know what that says about us. Um, we're afraid of the ramifications that has for our relationship with God. It's, it's like our first parents in the garden, Adam and Eve, who sinned, and then when God came to them and he called them to confession, saying, where are you? They tried to cover themselves. You remember the fig leaves? It's like that trying to cover up. We're feeling ashamed. We're going to fix it by covering ourselves up. Or they tried to hide in the trees of the garden and they, they squirmed under God's scrutiny and they tried to shift the attention away from themselves onto others, right? Anything but sit with the hard reality that they had violated their relationship with God and committed spiritual suicide. They thought that silence, not responding to God, hiding from Him, that might leave them in a happier place. Denial, blame-shifting, excuses, self-justification. Maybe that will leave us in a happier place, happier than stepping into the light and confessing their sin to God. That's what they believed. That's why they were silent and in denial and blame-shifting and finding excuses and justifying themselves. And that's what we do. Ultimately, it's because they'd already given themselves to the assumption that God is not good, God is not gracious, God is not ultimately interested in my well-being. He doesn't really want us to be spiritually happy. He doesn't want us to be blessed. They already believed that. That's why they sinned in the first place. But this is what they discovered after the fact, and what all the saints have discovered since then, what the constant testimony of all the Holy Scriptures has always been, very simply, God forgives sins. God forgives sins. And what could be a happier thought to someone who was absolutely sure that they had utterly ruined their hope for a relationship with God? If you thought your sin was so great that God couldn't possibly forgive you, you would be delighted to know that you were dead wrong about that. And that's how God introduces himself to sinners. There's nobody else on the earth for him to introduce himself to than sinners. And so when he comes to the earth for a relationship with people, he's coming to, to earth for a relationship with sinners. And this is how he introduces himself in Exodus 34 when he's, he's declaring himself. He's naming himself. He's revealing himself and his glory. And he says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love to the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. All words that we find in our psalm. Iniquity and transgression and sin. He forgives that. That's who he is. That isn't just something that he capriciously chooses to do every now and then when it suits him. That's, it's his name, it's his nature, it's his glory, it's his substance, it's who he is. And he wants you to know that. He doesn't want you to be left in the dark about that. He wants you to know him. So, in his mercy, in his grace, in his steadfast love, he will bring you to a place where you know him 
as the God who forgives people like you. Which means in his mercy, in his grace, in his steadfast love, he will make you to know what kind of person you are. He'll convict you of your sins and and convict you of your need for forgiveness. Because that really is the truth of the matter after all. So, So David writes that he kept silent and it ate him up. It's not good for you to keep silent because God wouldn't let him go without confessing his sin. God knows what's best for him. He wouldn't let him be truly happy apart from him. God wanted him to be truly happy as a forgiven person. That's the only way you get real blessedness, real deep spiritual happiness says in verses 3 and 4, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, your hand, God, oppressing me, bringing me to a place, so my strength was dried dried up as by the heat of summer. God will not let you be happy apart from his forgiveness. There's no happiness out there available to you apart from his forgiveness and knowing him as the God who forgives. So what are you going to do? Keep telling yourself there's no such thing as sinning against God? No such thing as sin? Are you going to keep telling yourself you're not guilty of rebelling against Him? Or keep telling yourself that maybe your good deeds sort of outweigh the bad, we just don't have to think about the bad stuff as long as we do enough good stuff? Are you going to keep suffering under the heavy hand of God who calls you to confession for your own good? Are you going to keep ignoring the gospel, the good news of God's grace and forgiveness in order to try to feel good about yourself? How about instead, you let him surprise you with his love? I think that's what you get here. In verse 5, David says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I didn't use fig leaves or any other construction of my own to imagine that I could stand in your sight. I said, I'll confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. It doesn't matter how many times you go through this process, uh, and you should go through this process daily, I think. It'll always be a surprise. It'll always be a rediscovery of God's mercy. Because even though we ought to know better, we still believe that if we acknowledge our sin, God will only turn his anger upon us. That's what awaits those who confess their sins, isn't it? It would be bad if I confessed my sin. Wouldn't it be? I think you'll be surprised. Here's the thing. Um, God has always known about your sin, whether you confess it or not. He's always known. Uh, Your heart is an open book to him. Even if you thought you've kept it closed. Even if you kept it closed to yourself, which is usually the case. God knows your sin. And if he was going to destroy you in judgment... He could have done it at any moment if he wanted to do it. He doesn't need to hear you confess your sin in order to forgive you. He doesn't need that. He wants you to confess your sin actually for your own good. As strange as it might sound. So that you will be surprised again and again at the reality of who he is. That once and for all, he has forgiven all of your sins. 
and you can't bring any of them up that he hasn't already accounted for. And I'm not talking about, you know, he, he wants you to confess your sin for your own sake. That, that's not just, uh, I'm not talking about just some therapeutic psychology. You feel better about yourself. You just get it off your chest or something. Uh, though those two words, therapeutic and psychology, come from good biblical Greek words for healing and soul work. That's not what I'm talking about. <clears throat> God isn't, uh, isn't just wanting to teach you a trick for dealing with your guilt and clearing your conscience and just having it all go on inside your own head. That's not what I mean. Um, maybe, maybe even to address the real physiological symptoms of the stress of it all, because people who uh, refuse to confess their sins, they suffer physically, like David does here, or others in the Scripture. No, God wants you to confess your sin so that you will know Him, so that you will relate to Him as the forgiving God. Because if you don't confess your sin and come to know him as the forgiving God, you're not really having a real relationship with him. But that's what he wants. He wants you to be assured of the forgiveness of your sin for your spiritual happiness, for your blessedness, for your deep joy in him as the forgiving God. <clears throat> How do we know that he has forgiven us so completely? How does David know when he says, I acknowledged my sin to you, I confessed it, and you forgave it. How did David know that? How did we know that? I mean, did he hear an audible voice? Sometimes maybe that's what we're looking for. Um, how do we know he's forgiven us so completely, and how did David know his sins were forgiven? God said it. He did say it. Maybe not right then in the moment with David with an audible voice, but God told him, and God's told all of us, God spoke forgiveness. He said it everywhere in the scriptures. You could find that in so many places in the scriptures that David had, just, just that David had in the Old Testament, which was not completed by his day. But we have the assurance of our forgiveness communicated to us most clearly with finality in Jesus Christ. How do you know that God forgives your sin? You look at Jesus. God's Son came into the world not to bless the awesome people. Not to bless the people who had it all together, the really religious, respectable people. God, God's Son came into the world to bless sinners. So he says that in, in Luke 5. <clears throat> it's a great little paragraph. Uh, Levi, one of the people that Jesus called to follow him, is one of the disciples. And he's uh, persona non grata in the culture because he's a tax collector and he works for the Romans and you know, good Jewish people are supposed to not like Levi. Levi made Jesus a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes, the really religious, respectable people, the people that thought, blessed are the awesome people like us, um, they grumbled at Jesus' disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, as if there was such a category, but sinners to repentance. That's who Jesus came for. And Paul says that explicitly. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The only kind of person in this world for him to save. 
That's 1 Timothy chapter 1. If God didn't want to bless you with the forgiveness of your sins, you wrestle with the, the idea, does God actually forgive my sins? Well, if he didn't want that for you, if he didn't want to bless you with the knowledge of him as your forgiving God and the forgiveness of your sins, that he wouldn't have sent his beloved son to the cross, but he did. Jesus Christ hanging on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins is the clearest, most revealing vision of God that the world has ever seen. That's God introducing himself to the world. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Not you've cleaned up your life and there's less iniquity than there was before. Um, Not that you don't have a huge, huge amount of iniquity in your account, but he doesn't account it to you. Right? This is what God wants you to know for your spiritual happiness. At the cross, he imputed, that's the same language, he imputed, he counted your sins against Jesus. That's the same language we find in the the New Testament reading in Romans 4, talking about the imputation and the, the justification that we have in Christ. He did it at the cross. He counted your sins, which are real, which you have, which you commit. You have committed, and you do commit, and you will commit. He's taken those sins, and he didn't count them against you. He counted them against his own son so that they wouldn't be counted against you. And then he took, he counted Jesus' sinlessness, his righteousness, as yours. Even though you didn't deserve it, he's covered you with Christ's own righteousness. In Christ, God has spoken, and he declares forgiveness. You are safe from his wrath. You are free from his condemnation, period. So when he brings you to a place where you confess your sin, you know it's not to condemn you. Even though his hand is heavy upon you, bringing you to that place, it's not to condemn you. It is not to ruin you. It is to bless you in the assurance of forgiveness. And that's the role of his good spirit, his Holy Spirit, in your life. One of his primary roles in our lives, to convict you of your sin. To not let you get away without understanding that you just violated your relationship with God. You need to understand that you violated your relationship against God you, not just to leave you feeling guilty, obviously that's not the point of the Holy Spirit's convicting work, but so that you will look to Jesus Christ, you will trust in Jesus Christ, you'll be saved, and you'll know God is the one who forgives people like you. Therefore, <clears throat> this uh, celebratory note of David's, um, we see in verse 6, Therefore let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. So the rush of great waters, um, I think, is a a biblical picture for God's destructive judgment. Think about the, the waters of the flood, God's judgment on the world when he saved Noah through that, or the waters that collapsed on the Egyptian army. Um as they were pursuing Israel, and Israel was saved through the waters. The rush of great waters didn't reach them, but it reaches the one that God judges. So it's a a picture for God's destructive judgment, and that judgment won't reach you. 
because you're sheltered. You have a hiding place. You're sheltered in Jesus Christ. Jesus is your refuge in that strong tower. He's, a, he's your refuge from God's wrath because the, God, the rush of great waters of God's judgment, they hit him instead. They pummeled him in, in your place. So to be godly, it says, therefore, let everyone who's godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. It doesn't just mean to be an awesome person who doesn't need mercy. That's not what it means. It means that you're quick to respond to God's prodding to run to Christ. You hear his, his call to confess your sins, and you do it. You confess your sins. The godly aren't expected to be sinlessly perfect. David's godly, and he's writing this whole psalm about wrestling through this whole process. What do you do with your sin? You confess it. And you go to God for forgiveness. He always needs that. We always need that. So the godly aren't expected to be sinlessly perfect. They're expected to be quick to confess their sins, put their faith in Christ, and run to Christ. It really is amazing, this idea that you are invited. Here's the invitation. Let everyone who's godly offer prayer. You're invited, you're called to continue to engage in relationship with God when you have just violated that relationship with God by your sin. The moment after, turn to him in prayer. Not get your life together so you can feel good about praying to God again. No, you go immediately back into your relationship with God because you're welcome. That's the blessing of the Holy Spirit. We should also be interested, just like David is here in these verses, in talking to other sinners. Talking to other sinners, inviting them, encouraging them to come to God in prayer and confession of their sin. To find God to be their refuge so that they too will find him to be the God who forgives sinners. Not like the Pharisees who thought that God really should reserve his blessings only for the good righteous people like themselves. It's inappropriate that he's hanging out with these sinners. And now the psalm switches to God's voice in verses 8 and 9. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Or it will not stay near you. That's what God wants. It's for you to stay near him. That's where you'll be happiest. He tells you as much. He's going to instruct you in that throughout your life. He'll watch over you. Keep his eye upon you. To keep you close to himself. That's what he's doing. Throughout your life. Keeping you close to himself. It really would be better for you if you stopped resisting him all the time. <laughs> like, a, like a stubborn mule who doesn't know that he's being led somewhere good. It might be counterintuitive for you, but when God is convicting you, when God is calling you to confess your sins and you'd really rather not, it's counterintuitive. When he's doing that, he's trying to lead you to a good place. It's to himself. The presence of his mercy. You can rejoice with thankfulness in your heart to God that he won't let you be happy apart from knowing him as the one who forgives sins. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds 
the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would continually surprise us with how good you are, how merciful and right, uh, and gracious and loving you are, that your steadfast love surrounds us, even us, people who don't deserve it. You love us. You've given yourself to us. You've given your Son for us. You've given your Holy Spirit and put him right inside of our hearts so that we can begin to relate to you in new ways. So we pray that you would help us, that you would overcome all our resistance to your grace, all our resistance to knowing you as the good and forgiving God. We pray that you'd overcome that, that you would do whatever it takes to bring us to a place where we'll confess our sins to you. We know that you're going to do that, um, even though there's part of us that doesn't want that. And we're thankful. We're thankful that you love us, even though we didn't love you, we don't love you. Um, We pray that your love would become more precious to us, that it would help us to run more quickly to you for your forgiveness, a forgiveness that was secured once and for all through Jesus Christ on the cross 2,000 years ago. It's settled. All accounts have been settled. We pray that you would help us to know and have the full assurance of your forgiveness, to know you as the one in whom is all our blessedness, all our joy, all our spiritual happiness, because you've forgiven people like us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.